tonight. You uh, may or may not be familiar with him. He is the man. Uh, and the reason is because he's from Maryland. That's right. Do you like Maryland's basketball team, the Terps? Are you a Terp fan? Not really. That's too bad. The Terps are a three seed this year. They almost took first place in the ACC. You don't care. This guy right here <laughs> from Westminster, Maryland, uh, actually kind of interesting deal. When I was growing up, there was a woman that had a very uh, big part in, in my younger years, transitional years, when I had some like serious changing going on uh, from, from non-spiritual Keith to spiritual Keith. Uh, she was very involved in that experience. It was his mom. It was really weird. Never saw this guy because he's like 20 years older than me. <laughs> uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, something like that. He is, he is uh, having a birthday today. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So I think as he comes up on stage, it would be appropriate for us to sing happy birthday to him. So here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear David Smith. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. He's a youth pastor at the Meadow Glade Church, David Smith. Thank you for that warm birthday greeting. I do feel about 20 years older than Keith tonight because it's not just any birthday, but it is actually the dreaded 30th birthday. So I, I, I'm okay. I've been coping all right. And so everything's good. The sun is still shining and I can walk and everything's good. So anyway, let's, uh, let's open the word of prayer. Dear God, we just thank you for the day. We thank you for the beautiful sun that we saw today and yesterday as well. And we thank you for the chance to be together. And we thank you for the Sabbath. And, you know, as I think back to my week and um, different distractions I've had and um, different things that have taken my time, I just think of the, the moment that we have now to, to recenter our lives Amen. and to come back to you. And so, God, we just pray for a connection tonight and that we can be reconnected not just to each other but to you and that you'll speak through your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I have a problem with salespeople. <laughs> if any of you are salespeople, I don't, nothing against you. This is more about me than you, really. But I have a problem with salespeople. I'm a sucker when it comes to them. When it comes to the whole sales pitch, every time it gets me. Well, it's not that I buy it. Here's the thing. I'm too cheap. I'm kind of stingy. I don't really buy it but I engage in the sales pitch. So you know what I mean? They ask the question. And there's always this opening question, and you know where it's going. You know you shouldn't answer. You know you should just ignore them completely, but you can't do it. Well, at least I can't do it. See, I'm a polite person. When people talk to me, I respond. If you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. If I'm going to answer, I'm going to say it truthfully, but that just plays into their game, okay? And so they ask the question, and then I respond, and next thing you know, we have this long dialogue, a.k.a. sales pitch, and at the end, I never buy anything. So I'm a jerk because I wasted my time and their time, and it's just a really bad experience. So I try to avoid them at all costs. Um, that's just my goal in life. Well, uh, it was last spring. 
I was at a, at a pastor's conference down in, in San Diego, and there was this mall next door that I kept frequenting. Uh, it's where I would eat. Uh, mainly, it's actually where I was getting free internet, because I was kind of using the Mac store as like a public library, which works quite well. And so every day, I would go there, and I'd go make my way to this Mac store. And as I would go through, there was this line of kiosks that I would have to pass. Now, now kiosks are the worst to me, because like the stores, they're tame. They just stay in their nice little area right there. But the kiosk people, you have no idea. Some of them are totally lazy, and they just kind of sit there. Others are aggressive as can be, and they come find you. Well, there's one particular kiosk that was very aggressive. They had, like, guys manning each corner, so two guys on each side, and not one shopper could get by without being engaged in a conversation. And somehow, throughout the last couple of days, I had made my way through unscathed, and I would never look them in the eye. I was just going to look down, go straight forward, and just ignore everything. Well, last day there, of course, I make the mistake guy addresses me, I look up, and I get him in the eye, and it's all over from there. You, you don't want to look him in the eye. So next thing you know, I'm engaged in the conversation. Next thing you know, I'm sitting in a chair, and I'm getting my hands scrubbed with this salt solution, <laughs> which was just a really bizarre experience, because I'm there, and there's this Israeli guy um, rubbing some salt that was imported from the Dead Sea right into my hands, and he's expressing, like, all these great benefits of the salt, the nutrients there as it absorbs into my hands. And I'm thinking, why? Why, why am I here? And about 15 minutes along, I'm just full of self-loathing, right? I'm like, why do I do this to myself? And then I start to get the panicky feel as I look around wondering if like, someone I know is going to walk by and see this Israeli guy rubbing salt in my hand. And, you know, like, I didn't buy it. <laughs> 20 minutes down the road, I didn't buy it. I had to leave, and it was just awkward and weird. And it didn't really do anything to like, increase my love of salt or the appreciation of salt scrubs anyway. But nonetheless, I have an appreciation for salt. I, I really do. Salt can be a good thing. Maybe not the body scrub kind of salt, but the edible kind of salt. I'm a big fan of the edible. If you were selling me salt that I could eat, that I could like, slather all over kinds of food, I would probably grab it. I would have bought it in a heartbeat. He just was going from the wrong approach with me. Because salt makes food good, right? When I got married, my wife introduced this to me. This is called Smart Food Popcorn. And I used to always make fun of her for buying this because it's like, who buys popcorn in a bag? You know, you make it at home. Why would you buy popcorn in a bag? But within the first taste, I was hooked. This stuff is incredible. I don't know why they call it smart food. If you look at the, uh, the back... One serving size, you get like a quarter of your daily fat intake. So it's not really that smart, but it is good. And so here's this smart food, right? And you think about popcorn. And popcorn is the most interesting of all foods because I love popcorn. Yet when you think about it, popcorn's not really that good, is it? I, 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 when I first uh, moved out of the house, I wanted to be healthy. And so I got myself one of those hot air poppers. You ever seen those? Did someone say, <laughs> you can re-gift that sometime, right? The hot air popper, it's this great, it's a neat concept. I mean, it pops and there's air blowing and so it shoots the light fluffy stuff up, it comes into your bowl, never touches any grease, it's super healthy, but it tastes terrible. And there's like no way you can ever possibly season it because nothing sticks to it when it's just air popped. And so it's this terrible idea to have air popped popcorn. You start to realize the true value of popcorn. It's about nil, okay? But then you come across something like smart food popcorn. And this smart food popcorn, it just combines everything perfectly because you have like the, uh, the cheddar on top and it's sticking to it because it's got the nice fat, the 25% of your fat intake. So it's sticking to it, which is great. But then it's the salt. It's the salt in here that makes everything come alive. And when you taste it, you're instantly, if you're like me, <laughs> you're instantly addicted to this stuff. 
Because the salt enriches the flavor. The salt enhances the flavor. The salt is what sells these things. So it's with that perspective in mind, that perspective rather than the body scrub salt perspective, that I come to this often read but perhaps under-contemplated text in Matthew. This is uh, buried in, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes when Jesus says this. And we've heard it numerous times again, but it's worth, say, worth reading. It says, uh, Matthew 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the salt of the earth. You know, perhaps I, I learned back in uh, preacher school that it's useful to, to contextualize things and so to bring it out from the text and then put it into your own culture, your own life. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, what if Jesus said this differently? You know, what if he was speaking maybe to, say, a group of Adventists? Maybe we read something more like this. You are the sodium of fried chick. The sodium of stripples and Morningstar breakfast patties. You are what makes that otherwise bland, texturized vegetable protein both addictive and appealing. But what good is it if you take out the sodium? What good is it if you take out the saltiness? It's good for nothing. ABCs across the world would be shut down. And vegetarians en masse would become omnivores by choice. What, are, what good is things without the salt in them? You see, I, I, when I read this, the first thing I think of is salt is good because salt makes food good. Without the salt, things are just worthless. Things don't taste that good. I was reading this week that almost everything that we ingest has at least a, a little bit of sodium in there. Your apple, sodium. Banana, sodium. Pizza? Okay, that's not a surprise. But anyway, there's all kinds of things that have salt in it. It's the salt that makes it good. And, you know, like when I read this, the first thing that I start thinking of, or the next thing I think of, is that if we are to be the salt of the earth, if that's what our role as Christians should be, as followers of Christ, if we're to be the salt of the earth, there should be something about our life that is making the world a better place. There's something about our lives that should be, be enhancing the world that we live in. It should be making it a more, a more beautiful place, a more attractive place. There should be something that's appealing about us as followers of Christ. The problem is, as critics will talk to you, as critics will point out, that's often not the case, Right? It's often not the case. The, the problem is, is that often the, pro- the case is that Christians are actually like the anti-salt agent, bringing out all the bad flavors in the world and, and, and doing more damage than good. There, there's a group, if you look through the news, every once in a while you'll see them pop back up, called the Westboro Baptist Church. You ever heard of them? The Westboro Baptist Church. Um, they're, they're not a real big group but they're kind of infamous because of what they do. And every so often, you'll see them back in the news again. And they're like on this mission to spread this message of hate. And they've kind of chosen their few basic um, hobby horses to ride. One is like homosexuality. The other is um, Jews. They're actually against Jews. And um, abortion. Abortion is another <laughs> common big one. And they go around and, and they'll like 
picket places. And, and not just places, like sometimes it's events, sometimes it's like funerals. And they'll go to this funeral with these signs like God hates fags or AIDS, God's cure for gayness, or, you know, all kinds of just like, just hate-filled, hate-filled messages, right? And, and they just kind of like wave these signs around, and that's their message of Christianity going out into the world. That, that's the message that they're, that they're shedding. And then that message gets picked up by the news media, and then it gets broadcasted to the entire world. It doesn't really sound a lot like salt. Uh, maybe salt concentrated, but that's another story. It, it doesn't sound like it's enhancing the world that we live in. But, you know, that's just like an extreme thing, right? We, we don't really come across that very often. But even if you go down a step or two or maybe several flights of stairs below that to a lower notch, even still, there's some problems with Christianity. Even still, there's, there's kind of this problem where sometimes we just don't really get this salt concept. Because we've all been around it, right? We, we've all been around that overbearing Christian who's more cynical than loving or more critical than caring or more self-righteous than conscientious of their own issues. And so you start to wonder, like, are we, are we, are, is that who we really are? And, and yet that's the perception that so many people start to have of who we are is this non-flavorful, critical unloving group of people. There's a show I like. Um, I don't watch many shows, mainly because I don't have many res- much reception in the house. Um, Battleground, you know, it's not really that far out of town, is it? But I, I get like no, no TV stations there. But anyway, I do get NBC, and uh, The Office is like the one show that I, I'm just addicted to. You know, it's been a while since I've had a show where I just, I'm anticipating the next thing, like during the Olympics, where I'm like, oh man, the Olympics are taken away from the office, you know? <laughs> There's no other show like that. But the office does that for me, because it's just a hilarious show, in my opinion. And uh, anyway, <laughs> going on beyond the show. Well, I, I, let me continue on the show for <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's not just about the show itself. Like, it's not just about the screenwriting. I think what makes the office so appealing to me are the characters, Right? The characters are different than your typical characters. So I went through high school when Friends was the big popular thing. And Friends was like all these cool people who like use too much hair product and they're just great, nice, attractive people. The office is like the opposite of that, right? <laughs> because they're all weird, they all look funny, they all have these like quirks about them and most of them, even Jim and Pam, are a little bit annoying. Like they can kind of get under your skin and you're like, I'm not sure if I'd really like to work with these people. But that's what makes it so fun to watch. But then there's that one character in the office, and that's Angela. Angela's the one we all hate because she's this uptight, critical, judgmental, callous, self-righteous person, and all kinds of other bad words start to spring up when you think of Angela. And you look at her, and of all the people, like she's the absolute worst, and she's the one that represents Christians. I mean, she's a conservative Christian. And, and all of the stuff that comes out, all of the character, all these like flaws of her, it's all this based on the stereotype of an unloving, critical, judgmental Christian. And it's all centered around that one theme. And it's like there's one side of you that you can kind of get offended. And you're like, man, this is just typical secular Hollywood. And they're just purporting all these like, or, or broadcasting these biases. And this shows that how they're out to get us. But then there's the other side where whenever you're dealing with a humorous thing like that, 
there's always some kind of truth that has to back it up. Without the reality to base it upon, it's not funny. And so somewhere along the, the way, as we're watching this, what makes it funny is that we can relate to it because we've known that Angela's in our own lives. We've known the Christians who are like that. We've known the Christians who are in some ways too critical, too overbearing, too judgmental, too whatever it is that you want to stuff in that blank spot. And so it's kind of disturbing because we start to wonder, are we really the sought of the earth? Do we really make this world a better place? Because when I read this text, I feel like Jesus is calling us to something bigger. And on the one hand, it's easy for us to kind of point our finger and get critical of people. We can be like, man, there are so many Christians who are ruining it out there for us. People like Angela. You know, the people who are just always letting this filth come out of their mouths. And because of them, they're ruining the image of, of Christ. But see, the thing with salt is it's not just about the activity. It's not just about the negative activity. It's also about the inactivity. Because salt has to be an active component in food. If you remove the salt from the food, the food is bland. If somehow the salt decides, I'm not going to do my job, I'm not going to be a part of this world, if it just kind of steps back, the food is still bland. The food's still unpalatable. The food's still not good. And so the real question that we have to be asking is, what do we look like as followers of Christ? Are we people? Are we people who are adding a special flavor to the world that we live in? We need to take that time to, be, to stop looking at the, the people on the fringes and start looking more inward. Having some of that contemplative, uncomfortable moments in the mirror. You know, you know those, um, that, back to that salt scrub guy, he also showed me how I could improve my face, Okay. I know it needs improvement, but he told me it did, too. So anyway, I didn't need, anyway, he brings out, like, this big cosmetic mirror, and you girls know about this. Um, I imagine some of you guys have come across this. These things are terrifying, because they, like, blow up your face, and you, like, look at it, and you see, like, every poor and imperfection you could ever imagine, and as you're looking at that face, you're just like, that's not my face, and he's he's like, it's your face. And so, like, after seeing that mirror, you know, I washed my face, like, five times every day after that for the solid week that followed. But, you know, like, it doesn't matter whether I look in the mirror or not. The imperfections are still there. You see, we, we, ha- we have them, whether we take the time to notice them or not. So it's important that we take the time to reflect, that we stop looking on the outside of the people on the fringes, and we spend more time looking inward and asking the hard questions about whether it is or whether we fall in the category of salt, whether we're adding flavor to the world around us. And by the way, there's differing opinions about what Jesus' target was on the salt concept, whether this was like salt that flavors or salt that preserves because they needed preservatives back then, didn't have fridge, Ziploc, etc. Either way, salt's making food better, you know, whether it's enhancing the flavor or whether it's stopping it from turning sour and having little maggots crawl in it. Either way, it makes food a better thing. So, um, carrying on beyond that, we have to look at the other aspect of salt that we sometimes forget, and that is that salt has to mingle with the thing that it's enhancing. You see, as Christians, sometimes... This is part of that activity level where we can't be inactive salt. We have to be salt that's interactive, that's mixing with the world around us. Because salt doesn't work well from a distance. 
And, and salt doesn't work well when it clumps together either, okay? So salt may taste really good in this nice little bag of uh, popcorn. It tastes great here. But if I would just take the salt out and say, wow, this is good salt, I should just eat the salt on its own, I would probably vomit. That would be gross. So salt, when it congregates and it stays off in its separate little world, it becomes quite untasteful. It has to mix in. It has to be worked in with the world, mixing it with the people of the world in order for it to be a flavor enhancer. There was a, a guy by the name of uh, Simeon, and a semi-famous monk, an ascetic monk back from, I think, the 5th century, early, years ago, okay, <laughs> a long time ago. And uh, this guy, just from an early on, was like one of these spiritually discerning guys. And when he was 13, someone read the Beatitudes to him, and it spoke to his heart. And so this is not the way that most people live. And he decided that he wanted to really just follow Christ for all he was worth. And so he just did everything he could to follow Christ. And along the way, he started to pick up different spiritual disciplines and started to get into these uh, rather different ones that involved pain and discomfort. Uh, that didn't really satisfy his spiritual longing. So he started to look for solitude, feeling that people around him were distracting him from following Christ. And so he started to kind of sit in huts and he would contemplate all day. But the problem is that as he developed this, like all these severe disciplines, that people start to hear about it. And so pilgrims from all around, from miles away, started to hear about this guy, and they wanted advice from him. So he'd come to see this sage, basically, and they would all come to him asking questions, asking him to pray for them. And he's like, oh, this is not working. This is stopping me from contemplating and meditating on God. So he built himself a pillar, and 13 feet in the air, and a little platform, very small, I think it was 12 square feet, puts it on top of the pillar, climbs up there, and begins to meditate. People are still congregating around him saying, this guy's incredible, we need to learn from him. So then he gets a bigger one and a bigger one. So finally he's 50 feet in the air. And he secludes himself from people all day, every day. All day, every day, 50 feet in the air, contemplating God all day long. Even his mother <laughs> came to see him and he rejected her saying, no, I can't see you, you will distract me. If we're lucky, we'll see each other in the afterlife. And it's like, Somewhere he missed the, the sought aspect, right after the Beatitudes, this idea that somehow we're supposed to mingle with the people around us. And you know, it's, it's a problem, I think, that we've carried on. It's a tradition that we've carried as Christians, where somehow along the way we get this idea that as we draw closer to Christ, we have to draw further away from other people. And so we begin to build these forts. Now listen to me for a second so I don't get fired. Um, for example, <laughs> Christian school becomes a fortress. We have these private institutions where people come and they get trained and suddenly they become indoctrinated in our own beliefs, but they don't connect with people outside of this environment right here. Now, now a Christian school is not a bad idea, but a Christian school was never meant to be a fortress. It was never meant to be a bubble that protects us from the outside world. The Christian school was meant to be a place that trains us to intercept, to train us to go into the world, train us to be connected to the world, train us to be able to interact with people in the world. But somewhere along the way, we lose that connection. And we build a fortress and we have a bubble that we live in when we go to our schools. 
And then sometimes the church even does the same thing because we start to um, feel connected in the church and it, and it meets us on these different social great levels. But then we find ourselves slowly losing contact with the people outside of the church and we start speaking a special church lingo of some type right inside the church. And, and we find ourselves socializing and eating together and sometimes even working together and it becomes our fortress and we lose contact with the world around us. Somewhere we, like Simeon, got this idea that the more we can disconnect from the world, the closer we will be to Christ. But that's not Christ's way. That's not the biblical way. If you look throughout the Bible, again and again, you see examples of people where Christ doesn't take them out of the world. He takes the world out of them and places them back into the world. And so you have people like Joseph. You have people like Esther. You have people like Daniel and Nehemiah. People who occupy very worldly positions. But in the course, they're able to change the world that they live in. And so somehow, we too, as Christians, need to follow that example. Because if we're going to be followers of Christ, Christ, Jesus, he was labeled as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't think you just get that reputation by spending all your time in the synagogue. <laughs> somehow, he was socially engaged with people. He was more than just even at the soup kitchen. He was at their house. He was more than just feeding people. He was being a part of the, the, the engagement, the social party, the, whatever it was. Jesus was there, mingling with the people, meeting their needs where they are at. Somewhere we need to find that focus again. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we need to be engaged with the world. We need to be mixed in with the world. He takes the world out of us, but then he puts us right back into that world, to change the world that we live in. Then there's other, one other component here as you're looking at salt and its function of flavoring the world around it. And, and that is this uh, last kind of sobering con comment. He says, can you make, or what do you do if salt's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot because it is worthless. See, it's not good enough just to mix in with the world. We have to retain this sense of saltiness. There needs to be something about us that distinguishes us from the world around us. There needs to be something about us where God can use us to work in the people we encounter. Um, the author, Francis Chan, um, he wrote a book called Crazy Love. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, there's a problem with your Christianity when people on the outside can't recognize that there's something different about you. That's a very loose, loose paraphrase of what he said. But the bottom line is that if when you interact with people outside of your faith community, if people can't tell there's something that's strange about you, if people can't tell that there's something that's different about you, then there's a problem with that. I was uh, reading a book called The Unlikely Disciple. You ever heard of that? It's a new book called The Unlikely Disciple by a guy named Kevin Ruse. And basic premise of the story is he's a secular guy, never really had much church contact uh, growing up, raised in a very secular home. And he was, was studying to be a journalist. And I think he was, uh, A.J. Jacobs was his mentor. And so anyway, oh, that's not what I'm trying to say. But the point is that, that he gets this idea, this crazy concept in his head that it would be interesting, since he's such a secular person, to understand this cultural divide in America between secular people and then right-wing fundamentalists. 
And so he enrolls to Liberty University. And if you don't know anything about Liberty University, this is like the classic right-wing evangelical school Bible college. Um, So anyway, he enrolls there and doesn't tell anybody about who he is. And he tries to just blend in. And so he does. And it's just like an eye-opening experience as he sees everything going on around him. And the interesting part to me as I'm reading this story is he's in the dorm. And if any of you have been in the dorm setting of a Christian school, you know that it's not exactly what you see at the pulpit at church. That's Particularly if you're in the guy's dorm, it's a little bit different <laughs> than what you see as your standard of Christianity. And so he's there and he's seeing all of that and, and he's replaying these things that he sees in the dorm. And he's not offended by it. For him, it just makes him feel more at home. But as he's relaying these events, one thing that he says is that he starts to notice there's no difference or little difference between the Liberty students and his secular friends back where he came from. And then at the end of the book, he confesses to all the people that he became friends with. He just has this moment where he just feels like he needs to let it out before he publishes this book, that I wasn't exactly who you thought I was. <laughs> and so, I mean, he had, like, everyone thought he was this different person. And so he's having these, you know, moments of hard truth. And he, he tells his roommate about it. And his roommate's just immediately apologetic. And Kevin's like, why are you apologizing to me? I'm the one who was living the lie all semester. And he's just like, if I only knew, you know, if I only knew, I would have, I should have acted different. And he just had like the, the, you could see almost the mental replay going through his head of all the things he had said rooming together, of all the things he had done. And it wasn't like he was really that bad of a guy, but there was nothing that was really different about him. And he recognized that in that moment of confession, that he didn't have something to offer as a witness that was different than the other people that Kevin may have known. If we're going to be sought, we need to be different. We we need to have something to offer that, that people can't find somewhere else. I can't help but notice, as I said earlier, this passage is embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, as I, as I look at the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like there's kind of two bookends. The first is the Beatitudes, which is, which is like a change of perspective in the world that you live in. And then comes the but I say section, which is the challenge to crazy follow Christ living, basically. And I thought it'd be just useful to kind of look at that. First here is the perspective change. Blessed are the poor who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Then he goes on to call us to incredible living, following Christ in all areas of our life. You have heard it said by our ancestors that you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. A little scary. 
Uh, you've heard it said, the commandment, that you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard the law say a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful to him, commits adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman should also, or also commits adultery. You have heard the law that it says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. You have heard the law say that to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Christ is challenging us to a way of living that looks so incredibly different to the world around us. He's challenging us to to a role that truly brings out beauty in this world that we live in. And, And when you read different commentators and they look at different things here in this text, the whole Sermon on the Mount, there's different perspectives on what it means. A lot of people say, you know, this isn't really for the here and the now. This is just something for later, maybe after Christ's return. Because this isn't really a realistic version of how you can live life. I mean, these are theologians saying that. This isn't realistically what you can do. This is kind of a future glimpse of what heaven will be like. But until then, we can't live like this. But I don't think that's what Christ was trying to say. There was no footnote at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There was no disclaimer. He just said, this is how... You live when you're a follower of mine. And it's challenging because I know I don't usually live like that. I know that I'm not usually the kind of salt that he's created us, created me to be. Yet the encouraging fact to me is I read this text again where he says, you are the salt of the earth. He's speaking in the present tense. It's not a command. It's not a future promise. But he says, that's what I am. He says, that's what you are, the salt of the earth, right here, right now. And as he says those words, it's almost as if, you know, while we're supposed to have faith in him, he has a certain amount of faith in us. And he's saying, I'm entrusting this with you. You are the salt of the earth. Just recognize it. Just live it. Just be it. Let's pray. God, your words are so challenging. Sometimes when we read them, it strikes, starts guilty feelings inside of us. Sometimes when we read them, it kind of makes us shake because we don't know what it would really look like to live the way you ask us to live. But God, we trust you. And we trust that our lives through your grace living within us can make the world that we live in here in the present look better. That we can enhance the lives of other people. That we can lessen the pain. That we can reverse injustice. So God, may we be your salt. May we be living examples for you. May our words, may our actions bring people into an eternal relationship with you is our prayer in your name. Amen.